there's going to be so many founders who are so envious right now. You may have seen us on Dragon's Den. We got five offers from all five dragons and accepted investment from Stephen Bartlett and Peter Jones. Brand Growth Heroes is the business podcast for the founders of food, beverage, and other consumer goods brands, and is ranked in the top 1.5% of all podcasts worldwide. Here our guests talk not only about their brand purpose or why, but also how where they play, who they employ, and how they work has driven their incredible success. This episode of Brand Growth Heroes is supported by Strong Roots. Strong Roots believes food can be better for you and for the planet. Their end goal? To fix the freezer aisle for good. I love Strong Roots for so many reasons, but particularly because their exciting product innovation and inspired branding has revolutionised freezer aisles across the globe in only six years. So this season, with Strong Roots support, Brand Growth Heroes will continue to champion the founders of insurgent brands on their own scale-up journey. Thanks again to Strong Roots. Simple, real food. I met Marissa and Teddy of Perfect Ted Natural Energy Drinks about 19 months ago when they were just bringing their business from the kitchen to national listing with Holland and Barrett. They joined a cohort of Brand Growth Heroes Growth Strategy Programme and we've been firm friends ever since. In this episode, you'll hear how Teddy and Marissa have grown their business from an idea to a national listing with Tesco and totally smashing it across both food service and retail in the UK. They tell us all about their Dragon's Den experience and what they learned about pitching and give loads of advice to founders on the same journey that they're on. Teddy and Marissa of Perfect Ted, welcome to Brand Growth Heroes. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having us. It's fine to be here. Thank you for having us. Oh, listen, it's so good to have you on. Tell our listeners out there, first of all, what you make and what you sell. And secondly, tell us the story of how you've become so successful in such a short period of time. We're Perfect Ted. We created Europe's first matcha energy drinks. And we're one of the largest suppliers of matcha powder in the UK. So we compete in the energy drink market, but also in the matcha powder market. We went from zero to a national listing in 18 months. And we excitingly got five offers on Dragon's Den uh, two weeks ago. That is unbelievable. And you accepted offers from Peter Jones and Stephen Bartlett. I mean, it doesn't really get much better than this. National listing in the UK in a really difficult category, soft drinks and then energy drinks and then natural energy drinks. You're up against some real behemoths in that category. How have you guys done this? Take us back to the beginning. How did it all start? And walk us through how you've managed to do all of this in just 18 months. To summarize before I get into the story, I think we've been able to do it because a lot of people have the same issue that I had. The reason why I got into matcha was because I suffer with ADHD and anxiety, and it got particularly bad when I was studying at university. I had long study days. I needed energy, was drinking a ton of coffee and energy drinks, and it didn't suit me. I felt horrible. I had jitters, crashes. My anxiety was so much worse. And then a friend recommended I try matcha because it's caffeinated, but it doesn't give you any of the negative side effects of caffeine. So I tried it and it changed my life. And I naturally recommended it to everyone, um, Teddy included. And I know it helped him while he was um, pursuing athletics at Penn um, for undergrad. And then when we moved to the UK, we realized there was a massive gap 
in the market for a really high quality matcha option, um, as well as an option within a ready to drink format. So we saw this, this gap mixed opportunity with creativity and passion. And now we're here. Take us back to the point where you were starting to make your first drink that you were going to try and commercialize. How did that happen? Sure. We had all moved in together in London and we were making giant vats of matcha together. And we had a soda stream uh, that we were trying to make sparkling matcha with different fruit flavors in. And I think we soon realized we needed professional help to make a commercial recipe. Um, and we were able to partner with the beverage developers who had helped Huel with their ready-to-drinks. Um, so then we we worked with them to create delicious fruity recipes. And are we allowed to say who that was? Yeah, absolutely. SH Foodie. They're based in Wales. SH Foodie. Okay, so shout out to SH Foodie. It's always lovely to support businesses that are helping startups in the food and beverage sector in such great ways. And I hear a lot of good things about those guys. What happened then? So once we developed a commercial recipe with no F&B background, Marissa and I thought it'd be as simple as create a great product, take it to market, and you know we'll have some customers. That was not the case. We realized that these things called trade shows are sort of route to introducing the product. So we first launched the product at the London Coffee Festival. But I think the story behind our, our launches is quite interesting and probably is a good indication of how the journey has gone ups and downs since we since we started. We had basically booked in a production for a trial batch to be able to launch it at the festival. We get a call a week before the festival from our manufacturer to be told there has been a fire in the factory. And I'm really sorry, but we're not going to be able to produce the product in time. Oh, we need out all of our savings. We were going big with this bang. And uh, at this point as well, we had been working on it for months. We had the branding done and we laid out, a th- you know, thousands of dollars or pounds. Actually, I'm not America. I'm not in America um, for this stand at the London Coffee Festival to launch it. And so we decided that if we weren't going to be able to launch sort of with a trial batch, we needed to order even more ingredients, do a full production run without confidence that the scaled up recipe would even work. So it was a massive risk, but it paid off. So we launched the London Coffee Festival and the response was insane. At the same time, Marissa and I were going, and my brother Levi, who's our third co-founder, we're literally going door to door to cafes, restaurants, hotels, anyone that would listen to us to try and get our product in there as a lot of F&B founders do. And then we very early on received a message from Holland and Barrett that were really interested in the category. And that provided sort of our first launch pad into, into retail. Okay, so Holland Barton, where did they find you? They found us through our Instagram, apparently. So we received an email um, to our generic hello at Perfect Head email. If you ever want to, you know, give us out, just reach out to us there. But they said they found us through our Instagram. Um, and I think for us, that was also really rewarding because we had invested a lot of time and effort into creating an engaging social media page. So for us, it was validation that we were doing something right in terms of our marketing. So that's how it happened. Before we get into that, something funny happened. I remember you telling me when we were working together that something funny happened with the production run for that coffee festival, because it doesn't always go this smoothly, does it? No, it does not. So what happened? 
to give you an idea of what happened, Teddy and I were nervous wrecks. We This was the first time that our baby was being put into a can and we had no idea if it would work or not. Matcha is not the easiest ingredient to work with and we've actually since developed um, a proprietary blending process that allows us to put it in a can. However, at the time, we had no idea what we were doing and it was our manufacturer's first time also using matcha as an ingredient. And you'd had the fire the week before. You were already nervous wreck coming up to the coffee festival. The fire the week before. We were working with the same manufacturer. We just had to use the larger tanks. We had to increase the volume by by 10. So it was a, it was a big jump. But we were sitting and waiting in the office area. And we were expecting to get the first few cans out of the um, canning line. And we're sitting and waiting, and it's taking a bit longer than we expected. And out of nowhere, the the man who runs a manufacturing plant comes in. He's wearing a white T-shirt, but it is now covered in green. Oh, God. He was covered in matcha. <laughs> covered. And he says, we can't can the product. And I looked at Teddy, and his face just went white. I wanted to cry. You have to understand the context behind this is that We've left our jobs on the basis that we would launch this product. And now we're being told we cannot even put the product in a can. Oh, my God. So what did you do? We managed to work with the manufacturer to come up with a solution that today is actually an incredible asset to the company and a massive barrier to entry for other entrants. And actually something that the Dragons were really impressed with. I think there's such a low barrier to entry for developing an F&B product. You can work with a recipe developer, you can find a manufacturer. I know it's not that easy, but anyone can really do it. I think the challenging thing is to develop something that other people can't and create a brand that really resonates with people. At this point then, you launched the coffee festival, people went mad about it, absolutely loved it. You knew you'd made the right decision to leave your jobs. Holland and Barrett got in touch. What happened then? I remember sitting on the <laughs> sitting on the call with the buyer and he turns around to us. We, we thought we were going to get, you know, maybe a trial listing in 10, 15 stores. We were literally two weeks in. And he turns around and says, I think the number was, we'd like to list you in 435 stores. Yeah, it was. I remember. I also remember on this same call, about 10 minutes prior to joining the Zoom, Teddy and I were sitting there and we were thinking, should we send him a deck or something? And we we're like, <laughs> yeah, we should probably send him a deck. <laughs> like, we just had no idea. We had no, so j- just to give you some insight, because we didn't come from this world. So for us, this is our first ever real buyer meeting and everything was new. It was really exciting, but it was also, we were clueless and so overwhelmed. <laughs> he, the, the buyer asked us, is your product ambient and chilled? And so for anyone listening to this podcast, they might know that ambient means it can be stored, you know, at regular room temperature. Chilled means it needs to be stored refrigerated. I said, it tastes better served chilled. <laughs> and he said, you said, you said both, but we'd recommend serving it chilled. Yeah. And he was like, uh, so is it ambient or chilled? You know, they asked if we had POS, POS being things that check out that would help advertise the product. I thought he was talking about a card reader. You know, we really had no no basis and no right to start a food and beverage company. And did that matter? Because people would feel really intimidated and think, I've got this idea and I can make it in my kitchen, but I don't know all of this stuff and it really intimidates me. But you guys just went ahead, even though you didn't know what you didn't know, right? Fiona, I think one of the things we've done is never take ourselves too seriously from the beginning. And you can kind of see that in our content. 
And I think one of the biggest superpowers we have is just asking questions as people. And I actually think that naivety really helped us. It made the buyer feel even more invested in our journey. And I think they felt that because we didn't have all the answers, they could help provide them and help guide us um, towards a successful retail launch. Something we've done that some people might be too fearful of is reach out to other people who know more than us. We joined the growth strategy program, for instance, because we knew you could offer expertise in this field and we could learn so much from you, which we, which we have. Um, we then were able to connect with a group of people who were also going through the same experiences that we were and share learnings. I think by networking and really looking to people who have more experience than we do, it's really allowed us to to learn from others and then, you know, increase our knowledge of the space. It's been great, isn't it? And I remember actually when we were on the growth strategy program in that cohort, you had just started negotiating with Holland and Barrett. And so we had a group of people who you could put questions to about margins and about store numbers and about promotional calendars and and that was a really exciting time for us all to share. So you were in Holland Barrett. Obviously, the product was doing really well. What was the next big step in your growth? At this stage, was it still just the two of you, wasn't it? You hadn't hired anyone at that point. Yeah, it, w- it was just the two of us. We're doing everything out of our, our kitchen. Um, so, so some background to that is myself, Marissa and Levi. We all live together. We all live together. We all work together. Levi's your brother, right? Levi's my brother, Mercer and Levi are romantic partners. Mercer and I are co-founders. And best friends. And best friends. And we're all roommates. Wow. So you live together, you work together, you sleep sleep together. together. I mean, unbelievable. (laughs) Holiday together, your families know each other, I understand. Because Marissa, you've been with Levi for quite a long time now, haven't you? Seven years, yes. Levi, that is a very long time for young lady. (laughs) Thank you. That is a very young time. I don't know how I put that with her, to be honest. Oh, Teddy, come on. Come on. Marissa is such a catch. So what was next then? You're all living together. First employee? Well, initially we worked, we we had a a field sales rep that was helping literally go door to door. Um, But I think the most impactful first hire was this amazing woman called Shani Higgs, who we we both know. Um, We met through you, Fiona. Yeah. We met through the growth strategy program. Yeah. Exactly. And she's come on as our head of sales and has just taken the brand to the next level. I think the one thing we, we got to a point, Marissa and I, where we realized we couldn't do everything ourselves and we had to bring on people that knew more than us. And I was calling Shani every week to get her advice on whether it's a negotiation or a promotional plan. So it felt like a natural, a natural thing. Every week. It was more like every night. Yeah, you're right. It was, it was every night. I was either crying to her or asking help. And Shani is just such another great addition to your team. So at this point in time, Today, as we're recording this, you have been in with a national launch in Tesco for like, what, two weeks now? Yeah, so we, we've launched two products in their meal deal. So two flavors of our matcha energy drinks in their meal deal, which is the holy grail for food and bev drinks. It totally is. And an incredible opportunity for us. And then we've just launched yesterday or Monday, we've launched two new products in Tesco in their back of store, which is a multi-pack. Um, so a, a four pack of our drinks. And we haven't talked about Dragon's Den yet because we have to get to that bit. But not only have you launched nationally with Tesco, which is kind of like stepping an awful lot of steps that startups in food and beverage tend to take. You get into the independence and then you get into Whole Foods and you get into Planet Organic. 
you guys have also done the food service route, which we'll talk about at some point, which has been a really interesting part of your business model. But you've gone straight into Tesco, national meal deal. And not only are you in the impulse chiller with the sandwiches in part of a meal deal, but you're also back of store in the carbonated drinks aisle. Yeah, exactly. And I think, Fiona, one of the biggest things is that along this journey, we've been advised, you know, when we look back to the Holland and Barrett listing, there were a lot of people that actually were saying, do not launch in Holland and Barrett. You're too early. You haven't built a brand. You won't hit the rate of sale expectation. You'll get delisted. Including me. I was quite risk averse about that. No, you can say it. I was scared about that, but you proved me wrong. No, and, and I think it's the same thing with Tesco. It's a massive risk risk to us. But I think the one thing that we trust in is that we will overcome those obstacles. And I think this whole journey has just been putting faith in ourselves and the team to get the job done, um, even when there is a lot of doubt. I mean, we're going to talk about it, I'm sure, later. But Matcha, before we started, was seen as a niche product. I posted on LinkedIn. I shared some emails we've received from people that are now customers of ours that told us it will never work. Matcha has never taken off. And so to take it to the UK's largest grocer in Tesco is a massive, massive step for us. It is massive. Well, it's a big risk. I think having the buy-in of the largest grocer in the UK um, is obviously a massive vote of confidence for the product and the need that it serves. And I know one of the reasons why our buyer was so keen to launch us into 1,200 stores front of store um, was because she personally did not feel served by the options in the market like I did. One of the things I think you've been very, very clever about, if I may say so, is the fact that you have started to link your product to the natural energy category fueled by green tea, right? Because what lots of people didn't realise was tell that story that matcha is actually green tea. Everyone understands green tea. Everybody knows how green tea is part of natural energy. So talk us through that because one of the key things that I see out there all the time is founders being absolutely in love with quite a niche ingredient and they want to bring this niche ingredient to market, but they can't make it mass market. They can't give it mass market appeal. And this is what you guys are doing. So talk us through how you've done this. To kind of explain what matcha is, if you don't know, it is a type of green tea. Um, It's just shaded. So it, it has a different growing process, but it's a type of green tea that's more nutrient dense. It has a higher caffeine content and higher, um, higher antioxidant content as well. Um, So when we were thinking about the product itself and when we would talk to people about it, you know, the number one thing was, well, that we would be asked is what is matcha? So we realized that there was a, a massive education piece that came along with the product. And one way that we thought we can make it a bit easier was by, and you actually helped us with this idea fee, was by making that association between matcha and green tea and using consumers' existing you know, knowledge base and then pl- and building on it because everyone knows that green tea is healthy. Um, most people know that it is caffeinated and most people know that it's full of antioxidants. What concrete changes have you actually made to bring that through in your comms? Well, the biggest mistake we made was that we had led our product positioning based on sort of product attributes. And that wasn't the thing that people were resonating with. They weren't resonating with the input, which was matcha. They were resonating with the output, which was energy. So the actionable things that we did was, A, when we're pitching the product, we're positioning it as a natural energy product, not as a matcha product. On pack, we changed it from matcha sparkling energy to matcha green tea energy. 
to place emphasis again to make that association everyone knows what green tea is everyone knows it's healthy on our shelf ready packaging we have green tea energy in big bold letters i mean it's just brilliant so the question we need to put to ourselves as founders out there in food and bev is if you've got an ingredient led proposition and you're really focused on this ingredient and you're love with all the benefits that it has Stop focusing on the ingredient, the niche ingredients so much and start pushing the benefits. Talk to us about what buyers would say when you'd go with the matcha product. They would say, where do I put you, right? Yeah, 100%. It's do we put you with kombucha? Do we put you put you with the energy drinks? Do we put you with the, the Jimmy's iced coffee? Um, and it was very, very confusing. It was confusing for us as well because when you don't have the data or the market research or the time or the sales data behind you to, to analyze patterns, you don't really know who's picking up your product. You can have a hypothesis. And we've actually been incredibly surprised by, as an example, and I'm going to share this on LinkedIn this week, one of our first online customers was a lady called Vanessa. And Vanessa works the night shift at Tesco. Vanessa buys our product every week online as a subscription, and she drinks it to get through her night shift. Now, when we launched in Tesco, Vanessa was walking down the aisle, restocking the shelf, and she saw our product and she DM'd us. And so I think when we first thought about matcha and who our target demographic would be, you know, it was younger, skewed more female, on trend. Vanessa is definitely on trend, but I think it's a, the, the need state of energy, longer lasting energy, reduced anxiety, ADHD support is a lot more mainstream than just matcha itself. This is the thing. So pushing matcha on its own is kind of like, I don't know, it's a little bit, I mean, I'm older than you guys, but it's very much Gen Z and and it's like sitting and having my matcha latte. My 13-year-old has just finished our Perfect Ted matcha powder tin. Genuinely, she has. She's 13 and she's watching all of these TikTok videos on how to be healthy and she puts protein powder in it as well and makes a big milkshake out of it. But certainly it's quite like people who have time to think about this stuff and it's probably a disposable income thing. But whereas natural energy, if I'm a buyer, I know where to put you. But at some point in time, you had to make a decision. Was that a scary decision to make? Okay, we're going to actually put our chips, we're going to bet on natural energy. Did that feel scary or did the more you had to make the decision, you kind of thought, no, actually, this is right? I think at first it was scary because we didn't have the data behind us, as Teddy alluded to. But... Um, and and it, it was very scary because we were going against Red Bull and the biggest players in the soft drink space. Ha- um, however, we soon realized that we were not targeting the same consumer as Red Bull. So there would be consumers who peruse the aisle. They okay. see the energy space as they usually would, and they they would never actually pick up something from from that space. But then they saw our drink as an option. And then they finally felt represented. But I also think you're giving us too much credit. I think when we thought about product positioning and where it sat on shelf, early on, it was very much a factor of price. So we could not sit next to Red Bull at £1.45 if we were at £2.49, which is the retail price that we first launched at. We needed to sit with something more premium like CBD or kombucha. It was only when we achieved a decent amount of scale, reduced our cogs, had a bit more margin to play with, that actually thought, you know, fuck it. We actually, there's not that much difference between our price and the retail price of a Red Bull. Um, Let's invest in getting it to a more accessible price point and let's go after that category as well because all of the excitement in F&B in terms of need state, I think the grocer came out with an article where it analyzed the top reasons as to why consumers buy F&B products. Energy is the number one reason. Immunity second. Both both need states that our product hits on. 
So for us, if we're going to play in the energy category, we need to compete with the big boys. And there's a real shopper and consumer insight into how you can drive incremental penetration for that category. And for anyone who is new to this kind of lingo, it basically means how you can bring new people into that aisle and buying from that aisle. I would never buy an energy drink. And the number one reason I don't buy an energy drink is because it makes me jittery. But the number two reason is that is almost a twin up there at the top with that number one reason is I can't stand the taste of them. I cannot stand the taste of energy drinks. So tell me how Perfect Ted actually brings people like me into the energy category. Sure. You know, we have a tagline, I don't drink energy drinks, you do now. Mm -hmm. Because what does it mean to be an energy drink? And the way we think about the energy category is in three waves. So the first wave of energy was coined by Red Bull Monster, focused on providing one thing at whatever cost, and that was energy. The second wave focused on providing that same kind of energy but using natural ingredients, and that's the likes of Tenzing. We're representing the third wave for people like yourself that would not pick up an energy drink, even a natural energy drink, because of the way it makes them feel, the jitters, the crashes, the anxiety. And so what we've done is we've innovated by using natural ingredients, which to be honest, in F&B today is kind of a given. We've improved the functionality and we've accessed a part of the market that didn't previously shop energy. I'm talking women, health conscious millennials, working professionals that don't want an afternoon crash. Um, and, and Marissa can sort of talk to the women piece, but I think there's a lot of people out there that don't currently resonate with any energy drink brand. Especially because they're all super hyper-masculine. Um, Red Bull, Monster, Rockstar, these brands feel very very masculine. There's no, there's no other brand that feels accessible to all people. And I think the way that we have actually positioned the brand with our colors, with our fonts, with our kind of fun personality, I think it, 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 it appeals to everyone. Um, so that was one thing that we were really conscious about when we were, when we were designing the actual look and feel of the product. I can't emphasize enough the importance of these little nuggets of data that allow you to open up an opportunity with a buyer when you're talking to any retail customer or food service customer about the idea of being able to, for them to be able to get more spend, more money spent in their category from people who are not currently spending money in their category. We were very lucky, the three of us, to be at the Elantra 50 dinner last week. Thank you very much, Elantra. And this used to be the grocer top 50, now it's the Elantra 50. And we were talking to a brand who will know when they listen to this who they are, who were saying that most of their customers were male. And I said to them, that's really interesting because 80% of grocery shopping is done by women. So rather than you imagining that your opportunity is to continue to get more male shoppers, actually, there is an enormous opportunity for your brand if you can appeal to women, because 80% of all shopping is done by women still, even though that's growing. And they were like, oh, wow, okay, we should have a look at that. And the buyers that you're talking to, whether it's Tesco or Asda or Morrison's or Waitrose or Ocado, or, and we'll talk about food service in a minute and cafes, they want to know that they can get people who they're not currently reaching into their category and spending more money, right? I think there's a really interesting thing or interesting point out of what you just said, which is around making the buyer or the customer the hero. So whether that's our direct-to-consumer business and we're advertising the benefits of the product that can help you help give you longer-lasting energy, reduce your anxiety, um, help support challenges like ADHD, or when it's pitching to a buyer and helping them to understand exactly how you're driving value in their category, not just the product's great, the brand's great, so help us, we're a, you know, we're a challenger brand. And 
one of the big insights, and this might lead on sort of to the to food service discussion, was that 80% of cafe sales occur before 11 a.m., right, on the average cafe. 80% of matcha sales occur after 11 a.m. So the conversation that we have with retailers or specifically cafes, restaurants, hotels is that, hey, you're killing it in the morning, but why not access a new revenue stream in the afternoon for people that aren't currently shopping Absolutely. And then let's talk about this because this is another really to shift and I'm dying to talk about Dragon's Den and I know that everybody listening to this is going to want to know all about Dragon's Den. We will get there, but there's so many interesting things about your business because we've got to the food service bit. Let's just talk about it. So one really interesting part of your business model is that you have quite a chunky food service business and it's B2B play. You know, you're talking to food service operators and it's with a different product mix than the product that you have in Tesco. Talk to us about that. How does it work and what role does it play for your business? So we have our wholesale matcha powder and it's actually what we started the business with. Our first ever account was in the cafes at Planet Organic. This preceded our drinks launch. So matcha powder has always been at the core of the business. It's what we use within the drinks. And we we found that there was there was a really ripe opportunity to approach these cafes with a higher quality product at a much better price point. And the way that we were able to achieve that was by disintermediating the supply chain of matcha powder and going directly to the farms in Japan. And so cafes welcomed our powder because there was there was no other option on the market that was as high quality organic ceremonial grade and had the kind of provenance that we have Is that why up until now I didn't actually like matcha drinks in cafes? Because how did you know there was an opportunity in cafes? Because we were going to cafes and we were not, one, we weren't able to find matcha. So we often went to cafes um, to work or to just hang out and we try to order one. They didn't offer it on their menu or when they did have it, it was fake matcha. So it was either powdered green tea that was super bitter, super grassy, or it was overly sweet like Starbucks because it was half sugar. That's it. That's been my experience as a consumer up until now. Overly bitter, overly grassy. And that's what I thought matcha was until you very kindly sent me a tin of your matcha powder when we were doing the growth strategy program together. And I went, okay, I get this. I get this now. And it was almost like you can imagine really appreciating the flavours in a craft beer or in a wine. It was a totally different experience So you got that into cafes and hotels and restaurants, didn't you? Yeah, but I think actually it was more an evolution than that. And it was more, it was more just, you know, the biggest barriers, as you mentioned, were taste and accessibility. The Mm -hmm. taste piece we covered, right? If you, if you produce a high quality product, improve the taste, people are going to like it more. There's going to be higher repeat purchase. When we first thought about launching a matcha brand, we were so focused on Fiona Fitzpatrick, buying our matcha, going home, making it at home and drinking her matcha latte and Instagramming it. And it was going to be beautiful. The truth is most people are consuming matcha in a cafe. And so thinking about where people are consuming your product is the most important thing. And that kind of led us to, to say, okay, if most people are consuming it in a cafe, we need to be the matcha powder that's used across every cafe. And so we took inspiration from a brand in America called La Cologne. They're a coffee brand. And when they first proved the quality of their ingredient, they forced themselves into a Michelin star restaurant and they got a Michelin star chef to cook with the ingredient. And we did the exact same thing. So we walked into Hotel Cafe Royale. We annoyed them for enough time for the Michelin star chef there to say, you know what, we'll cook with it. And they started making matcha desserts. 
And we were then able to take that proof point to other cafes and say, hey, if it's good enough for Michelin star chefs, it's good enough for you. That's amazing. And what role now does that food service business play in your business? Because I know it plays an important role. Massive. Matcha in our drinks is the most expensive ingredient. It's the highest part of our cogs. And by achieving scale in that food service piece has meant that we've drastically reduced our cost of goods on our canned energy drinks. So it's it's been huge. And also, I think drinks are very seasonal. Matcha, you can have an ice matcha latte, you can have a hot matcha latte. It was a great way for us to be able to protect the business against those trends. And also now, I think it's coming up to 60, 70% of our, of our revenue. It's also a really amazing recurring revenue stream. Um, really easy to predict because we kind of ha- can gauge how many matcha lattes a- an average cafe will go through on a given month. Um, so really great for forecasting, super great for also like supporting our drinks business. I love how you just talked about the seasonality and how you have got something that protects you, your business from that seasonality. That's fabulous. If you're the smart founder of a scaling grocery brand and you're inspired by what you learn on Brand Growth Heroes, why not check out our online business accelerator for founders who want to take their growth to the next level? The Growth Strategy Program is a six-week online learning course which offers a suite of bespoke lessons, tools, one-to-one coaching, group workshops, and access to a growing network of support from smart founders of grocery brands just like you. We love you, Fiona. And you've been an incredible mentor to us and your program was wildly helpful. So if anyone is thinking of doing it, we really recommend it and don't think we would be able to get here without having done it. You can find out more by going to brandgrowthheroes.com and then clicking online courses. Then just press register your interest today. Thanks again to Strong Roots, simple, real food. So we haven't actually talked revenue, but you are coming up to your rolling projected revenue for the next 12 months is 4 million, right? Yeah, so we're at a run rate of over 3 million pounds as of this month. And we're projecting to hopefully get to, I mean, last time we discussed it was four, but I, I think we can hit five plus. I'm really bullish on the reception we've got since Dragon's Den. We have an incredible mentor and advocate in Stephen Bartlett that is tapping into this massive urge for people to feel more energized in a healthier way. And so like, why limit ourselves, right? Let's do this. Let's get to Dragon's Den. How did you get asked to do Dragon's Den? When did you record it? How did you prepare for it? How did it go? And what has been the impact of this on your business? The impact has been immense. Um, It's been probably the most incredible experience from start to finish. I think at the beginning, I I probably wouldn't have said that before we went on the show because it was super overwhelming and there were a lot of issues that we had in the lead up to it. (laughs) We had five days to prepare and this was in June 2022. Why did you only have five days to prepare? What's that about? I don't know why, but they called us five days in advance and they said, we have an opening. I don't think they were going to put us on. I think someone dropped out. Uh, Yeah. They called us on a Saturday. They asked us to come up on a Thursday to film. And we just went into straight preparation mode for like five days. So what did you do to prepare? I mean, how do you even go about knowing what to say in your pitch? Because that's one of the things people online have been saying, just how great your pitch was. So how did you approach that? What did you do? So we actually didn't start out with the pitch. We started out with sorting our financial projections because 
fortunately, we didn't have that much um, trading history. So it's not like they were going to go into, you know, a deep dive on our historicals, but we knew that our future projections would be, would be a sticking point for them. So we spent ages on Excel using our accounting software zero to try to kind of forecast everything. And then we spent loads of time watching pitches, watching, you know, full segments on, on BBC iPlayer to find out questions that they could ask. You know, we went as far as to find out the kind of glue that we use as the adhesive to our label. Like, because we knew Deborah Needham would care about the sustainability credentials. So we just- As do we, but we, you know, you need, you need to prepare for every question. And so we really did. And finally, after all of that, I think it was like two, I'm not joking, two days before filming, we were like, we should probably start working on the pitch now. And we had, we had told our story several times, but not in such a concise and I guess, in such a high stakes way um, that we knew it would be filmed on national TV. And I think we went back and forth quite a, a lot on whether or not we should take a product-led approach or a brand-led approach. And fortunately, we decided on the latter. Um, and I think that's because we realized, and it's the same way that we decided on using a, a human name in our brand name, um, people resonate with with people and their stories. And so storytelling is a really core piece of our marketing. And we knew that this was going to be our largest marketing opportunity in the world. Um, as, as a small brand with very little money, this was organic 13 minutes of primetime television. I mean, we, we, we had to get this right. So by leading with our story, I think we were able to really resonate with a lot more people. I think the the number of, of people who, who have personally reached out to me, who have reached out to us, reached out to the team to say, I struggle with ADHD and anxiety. I can't drink coffee. I can't drink energy drinks. And I tried your drink at, I picked it up at Tesco in the meal deal and I have never felt better. Um, and so really reaching these people who too had the same struggle as I did um, and seeing that they have benefited from the product, it, it's it's powerful. You decided to take a brand-led and a story-led approach. Then what did you do? How did you build the pitch? Or talk to us about how you felt when you went in there and did it. We wrote about 50 iterations of the pitch that didn't feel authentic. It was not how we'd speak in, in person. We're humorous. We, we like to crack jokes. We're a little bit informal. And so everything down to our outfits. I mean, I was wearing, people thought I was wearing tracksuits. They weren't. They were fire, really cool green trousers whatever <laughs> but we we you know we'd seen stephen bartlett had made a comment on a previous pitch saying if you're trying to create a brand and and a consumer brand why would it why would i invest in someone that's wearing a suit you know i, I did wear a suit i have to say yeah but, it was but like a I, spi I spiced it up with some green yeah really bright green shirt with your suit but we created a pitch you know the first 50 iterations of it were just inauthentic and it didn't feel right and i think the only authentic way to share why we started Perfect Ted is to discuss the struggles that Marissa had and the influence that had on her starting to drink matcha and then the sort of imposition into, into my life. By the way, that was very anxiety-inducing. To talk about your, your anxiety on national television, it didn't come super naturally at first, but then I think realizing the, the kind of national stage that we had to shout about mental health awareness. And by, I think by speaking about it, you destigmatize it. 
Um, and so for us, I think that was also a really massive opportunity. And uh, I'm glad that we did. I'm glad that we led with that approach. Yeah, Dragon's Den was by far the biggest risk we've taken in the business today. By far the biggest risk. What was the risk? What did you perceive the risk to be? We all know someone who went on the den and um, I think it was before they had worked out a few kinks in their product and the dragons did not like the taste. Um, and I think taste is such a subjective thing that, um, you know, we have people who absolutely love the drinks. And then we have people like my grandparents who say, it's not for me and that's okay. Um, and so, but if you have someone with as much power as Stephen Bartlett, Deborah Meaden, Peter Jones, Sarah Davies, Tuco Sullivan, like saying that they don't like your product, that they don't like the taste. Other people may be put off and say, if they don't like it, I probably wouldn't either. So that's what you're scared of. And that's not what happened. Tell everyone who hasn't seen the show what actually happened. Teddy, you were sick, right? You had glandular fever. And you know what's funny is I'm also sick today, but I figured that if I was, if I performed well sick on Dragon's Den, maybe it's like a good thing. How does anyone get glandular fever when they're 25, by the way? I thought that was like when you were 16. He was ill for like two weeks after the show. It was crazy. My mom says it's because I kissed too many people, but... That's what I was edging towards because in Ireland, it's known as the kissing disease. Actually, fun fact, during filming, Teddy had to have a glass of water next to him and he kept on pausing throughout the, the that hour and a half that we were in there to drink. And he'd be like, one second, one second, one second, I can't speak. Oh, God. So did the dragons know you were sick? No, they, they definitely could tell. Jones, I think I asked at one point, why do you keep drinking so much water? But it, it went amazingly well. And, you know, Marissa and I disagree on this, but I, if you would ask, we were in there for an hour and a half, by the way, an hour and a half of consistent fire questions. And if you had asked us if we were getting an offer, one offer within the first 15 minutes, I would have said no. It was a really tense kind of atmosphere. Stephen Bartlett didn't try the product for the first 30 minutes, I think. Teddy took issue with this. He thought it was because he didn't like us. But I actually felt, and Stephen, and you can see this in the clip, he was the first dragon to ask us a question. And the first question out of his mouth was, how old are you? Um, and I've, I've, we watched enough episodes, I think for both of us, even though you say you don't, to know that I think he's really taken in with the story of the entrepreneur and he wants to know their background. I mean, in his own podcast, I have a CEO, he goes more into the story of the person and, and yeah. their childhood. Um, and so I found his interest to be a positive thing. So for the first 15 minutes, you weren't feeling it. And then at the end of it, you got five offers from all five dragons. How did that feel? Pretty insane, right? I'm not sure how. Totally insane. Yeah, it was insane. And we went to the, going in, we, the intention had always been, how can we get five offers? And we went to the back, by the way, when you go and talk to the wall, there's a little tape on the floor and you stand there on your mark and you're not that far away from the dragon. So they can kind of hear you and we're covering our, our mouths, but it doesn't help because they have a mic. And we were just like, holy shit, this is crazy. This was, this was beyond our wildest dreams that we would get five offers. We went back, we, we looked at Peter and Stephen. We said, thank you so much, everyone. Super kind of you. And we asked Stephen and Peter if they would do the deal together. And they looked, they made it seem like it was longer in the edit, but it probably within five seconds, they looked at each other, they nodded and they said, yep, yeah, you got a deal. We left Manchester that day of filming with a deal with two, two of the dragons that we'd gone in there hoping to get. 
What's so interesting though, is that because this was so long ago and you can't tell anyone what actually happened, you have this insane event that you just filmed for national television. You actually can't tell anyone about it. You can't tell anyone the outcome either. Um, and your life doesn't change. Like you, you've just technically, you know, yeah, got yeah. an investment, but then you go into due diligence and it takes a while. And so you have this really high, high, but there's nothing different in your life. The next day, it's just the same, the same thing as the day before. Um, so I think both of us had a bit of an adjustment period after filming this because it was difficult period yeah. to cope with. Actually, the, the two lowest points for me personally on this journey have been the day after the Dragon's Den filming and the day after the Dragon's Den airing. As Marissa said, you go from such a high to nothing changing the next day. I mean, the Dragon's Day hiring changed a lot. It's been probably the biggest inflection point of our business. Of our business. It has led to even more highs in terms of the reception, but also a lot of scrutiny. You know, there are some really mean people out there on Twitter, and I had never been exposed to this kind of scrutiny before. But I think, you know, we were advised not to look at Twitter, but you, you can't help yourself. There's some nice stuff, though. There's way, way, way more nice stuff than there is mean stuff. You don't remember the nice stuff. You remember the mean stuff. I know. And I see that you're turning it around to your advantage by making content out of it this morning on your TikTok. You've got Teddy reading out the mean tweets and replying to them. And that's very funny. What advice would you give to founders who have been invited to go on Dragon's Den? Or indeed, what learnings can you take from how you prepared for that pitch and how that pitch went and give advice to people about pitching in general, whether to investors or to retailers. I think one of the most important things about pitching is confidence. Even if you don't feel it, you have to exude confidence because at the end of the day, you're the person at the helm of the ship. You are leading this business. You're leading the vision. You're leading the future direction of the company and the whoever it is, the buyer, the prospective employee, the you know future investor, they need to have confidence in you. And if you don't have confidence in yourself or seem to have confidence in yourself, they can't have confidence in you. So I think um, one of the main pieces of feedback that we got was that we, we seemed rather confident up there. And we were. We were really confident in our business. I think obviously there was, I have anxiety and there was a lot of anxiety around pitching um, on national television. But I think you have to kind of put that all aside and just really stand up there proud and speak clearly and just be confident. I think that the challenge is, is that throughout the past 18 months, Mercer and I have never doubted ourselves. Like we've always trusted in that we would overcome challenges and obstacles. The doubt has come from other people. And it's really tough to know who to listen to, who to take advice from. Truthfully, if I hadn't had a co-founder in Mercer, I would have quit maybe a hundred times over the past 18 months, two years. Just because you get so you, you get wins and then you get people telling you it's too niche, or you get people telling you they don't like the product. And I think the biggest takeaway is that all you need is enough people to like it. And yeah, that's that's been the biggest challenge is, is choosing who to listen to and, and who to block out. Yeah. And as we have proven, even our relationship, some of the things I've said to you along the way, you've proven me wrong and other things have been incredibly useful. You need to know as founders what bits of information, not even what person to listen to, but what bits of information that even the person you trust the people you trust tell you and filter it out and have that confidence that you're talking about, about your business and what's going to work and what's not. That is hard, especially at such a young age. 
I think you do have to be a little bit deluded to start a business because if you were entirely rational, you'd look at the data and say that most food and beverage startups fail. Yeah. Most startups fail, but most food and beverage startups definitely fail. And so you have to have a relentless belief in resilience and persistence in putting your product out there because the amount of times we've been told no is way more than the number of times that we've been told yes. All that matters is the yeses. That's amazing. That is such great advice. Talk to us about your content and how you create content because it's really refreshing. It's very funny. It's very much about you guys and the business story. It's not just like shots of product all the time, which I think this segues really nicely from our last episode with Jake Carls of Midday Squares, who you introduced me to when we were doing the Great Strategy Program and that time that you called out Midday Squares and I thought you said Midday Squirts. <laughs> and the 10 of us laughed for about 15 minutes. Yeah, Shona Blair from Beam Bar still laughs and cries about that to this day. I told Jake about Midday Squirts. He thinks it's hilarious too. But that's all about a model of content that is very much about the people. Talk to us about that. Yeah, I think when we when we first started out, we knew from the get-go that we we needed to have people at the heart of the brand. And that's why, and I mentioned this before, but that's why we chose the name Perfect Ted. Um, we purposely had a human name in there because people resonate with human stories, not inanimate objects. And I think especially in this day and age when social media is pervasive, everyone is on their phones all the time. They're, they're on social media more than they're watching television now. And so to really cut through the noise, you have to be entertaining. Why are people locked into TikTok all day? Because they find these really, enter, you know, the algorithm works. They find these really entertaining videos and they just get looped in. We've really tried to play on this. I think another brand that's done really well with this too is Liquid Death in the US. And they've capitalized on the fact that true crime and murder mysteries are the number one genre amongst women in the US. And what other brand is tapping into that? So I think for us, we realize that, you know, people enjoy entertainment, people enjoy comedy. Um, what will get people hooked in um, and really engaging with the brand? It's not going to be, you know, static images of our product. If they wanted to go see our product, they could go into stores. We want to put personality behind the brand, get them invested into our story, our journey, you know, our day-to-day. -day. We literally want to create a reality TV show, I kid you not, because there's so much that goes on in the daily course of our business that that we feel we have enough content to to have a show on, you know, building a business on and then getting people hooked into that story. Um, and I think people enjoy it. Is that a little pitch out to any producers or directors out there who want to produce your show? <laughs> yeah. yeah, seriously. I'm not joking. We're literally looking right now. But I think it does, it does require a lot of vulnerability. People yeah. think that we're super comfortable in front of camera. We're not. Like It is very intimidating to produce content. It's very easy to post on LinkedIn about a 1200 store Tesco meal deal launch. It's not easy when you first started the brand, and this is what we were doing. When we first launched the product, we had no customers and we were just documenting the journey. We were documenting not getting a great taste award or crying. Marissa crying. You know, that is the <laughs> people almost love the failure more than they love the success. And so we're going to give everyone the unedited version and we will die on the hill. You know, we are so hell bent on making Matcha Energy accessible to as many people as possible. And we're going to document the journey of either achieving that or getting to as far as we can and, and, and falling down. Hopefully not. 
This is really important, I think, because I know we had this debate on the way in in the car when we were talking about just how quickly you guys have grown to this nationally distributed in a mass market retailer. And you were saying you want to prove that anyone can do it, you know, that you can go from not understanding food and beverage and not knowing what ambient and chilled is to getting as far as you guys. And I was saying I feel slightly uncomfortable about that because not everybody can do it. And I think we finally got to a place where there is a trade-off. We finally agreed that there is a trade-off, right? And the trade-off that you guys have decided to give is, you said something really interesting to us. We could only afford to have two people in the business. So we decided we'd work, tell that story because that's really important, I think. Yeah, I think when we looked at other brands, you know, from very early on, we thought, why can't that be us? You know, when we looked at Tenzing, which was the biggest natural energy player, we were hell-bent on competing with them from the get-go. And so how do you compete with a 15-person team as a two-person team? You work 10 times as hard, and then you go to a 20-person team. Mm -hmm. And so we genuinely sat down and we said, okay, if on average their employees are working X number of hours, and this is maybe a little bit toxic, and we're definitely a little bit psycho in terms of doing this, (laughs) but we sat down and we thought, how many hours do we have to work to essentially have an X-person team? And then what kind of scale could an X-person team take this brand to? And that's what we did. But as you mentioned, it's come at an immense cost to personal relationships, friends, family, financial sacrifices has been a big thing. But you're making that decision actively. I think it's really important that everyone out there realises this. Yes, you didn't know. You really didn't have any idea about food and beverage, you know, and you've had to learn. But you've decided, you've decided confidently and you are happy about that decision that you're going to work this hard, which is all weekends, evenings, nights, mornings, you name it. I think Marissa and I also were a bit work obsessed. And so if we weren't working this hard on Perfect Ted, we'd be working this hard for someone else. And so we made that decision early that we're going to do it for ourselves. What I find admirable about that is not that you are working that hard, because that's not something I would choose to do, but admirable that you have made that active decision. It's not a, oh shit, you know, two years have gone by and I have worked this hard and I didn't mean to. It's like, no, you've gone into this with your eyes open. This is what we're going to do. This is what it's going to take. One of the ways in which we're going to win is just how hard we're going to work. That's your choice. There are really, really tough days and there are really tough weeks and months or whatever. And when that happens, the biggest piece of advice I'd give to other people that's really helped me personally is just focus on winning that day. You know, when you wake up, you don't want to get out of bed, you feel like you have a brick on your chest because you're anxious and nothing is going right. Focus on one thing. And that thing is, how can I win today? I also think just another general piece of advice is communication. Um, if you have a team, if you have a co-founder is, is the most important thing. And if you're not feeling, if you wake up with a brick on your chest, tell your co-founder and, and maybe try to, to talk it through, explain why, and then you'll feel better. Um, you'll work through it. You can get ahead of issues and, or it gives them a heads up that, okay, maybe I should be a little bit more sensitive to you today. And I think communication allows for the most effective use of time and um, just general productivity. I think Marissa's trying to tell me something there. <laughs> For all of those people out there who are scaling a food and beverage business by themselves without a co-founder and they really want to scale it to a sizable business, what would you say to them? I would say find other people in the space, network, and and use them as, as, as a resource. Um, someone that you can speak to just about, you know, the the trials and tribulations of starting a small business um get 
you know, if you, maybe freelance help, because I think one person doing everything is almost nearly impossible. I mean, it was borderline impossible for two of us to do everything. So um, one person I can't imagine. I would also say, you know, get a gratitude journal. I think it, journaling is like the most powerful thing. It really just helps keep you in touch with who you are. It, it, it helps you figure out your priorities. And focus on the good things, right? It allows you to focus on the good things or it forces you to focus on the good things and the wins that you've had and not just focus on the bad stuff, like the things that happen when you can't deliver all of the cans because all of a sudden you've had an absolute explosion in demand. Just how big did your demand get after Dragon's Den? Yeah, it was crazy. But I think, honestly, that one of the biggest takeaways for me from this podcast is you give us a lot more credit in it being this intentional journey and intentional decisions that we made to create the brand that we have today, which by the way, we're still fighting every single day to make it a success. It has been very much a journey of massive ups and downs, 18 months, two years to a national listing. It's all just hard work and grit. There's been some really down days. And I think for us, the takeaway would be like, just keep going because you got, you know. Yeah, also we've gotten very lucky. I mean, when we, when you asked before about how we felt and why we decided to um, to pursue like the natural energy route, um, we kind of felt, you know, we fell upon data from Ocado that said that they saw a 2,150% increase in sales of natural energy drinks between 2020 and 2021 around the time that we were deciding, okay, what category are we playing in? And we were like, that seems pretty good. Yeah, we should probably continue pursuing that route. So a lot of this was luck. Um, It's not like we had this master plan from the beginning. And I think we've been really agile. We've been able to adapt um, to kind of say yes to opportunities as as we saw fit and when they came about. Um, and they, they've just happened to work, but we have a long way to go. It, it's honestly, Fiona, like people like yourselves that are putting out content that other brands can learn from. The idea from Lack Alone, the ideas from Liquid Death, the ideas from other brands have come from people like you that are putting really great content out there that showcases the little tips, tricks, nuggets that you can use to get ahead. Well, there's some really fabulous insights in all of that and advice and tips for those people listening. What's next for you guys after Dragon's Den? after all of this excitement? We are incredibly fired up to be working with Stephen Bartlett and his team super closely to scale the business and get Match Energy and Perfect Ted into as many hands as possible. And grow the team. So if anyone listening wants to join Perfect Ted, reach out, please. Oh, okay. So you're recruiting. Well, look, I have absolutely adored getting to know you guys over the last 19 months. Thank you so much for being my date last week at Elantra. It was just the best night. And I loved being with you. And I really look forward to standing on the sidelines and cheering you on over the next 21 years. We love you, Fiona. And you've been an incredible mentor to us. And your program was wildly helpful. So if anyone is thinking of doing it, we really recommend it. And don't think we would be able to get here without having done it. Ah, Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for sharing your story today and I'll see you guys soon. Thanks again to Strong Roots, simple, real food. 